Hello, my friends. What's up? This is Ari in the Air. I am a professional extreme sports athlete. I'm a paraglider and a highliner and a skier. I also make films. I record a podcast. I'm a philosopher. I'm a deep thinker. I am a meat-eating vegan and a... Yeah, I don't know what else I am. But I got two legs and two arms and two eyes and a mouth and my brain goes a million miles an hour and to try to slow it down a little bit I have this podcast I talk about fun stuff thanks so much for being here today I want to tell you about this crazy interaction I had yesterday with an 87 year old man he's from Germany and of course if you're 87 years old and you're from Germany you remember some shit and his age had some very um, interesting insights that came with it. And as well, he asked me some really profound questions and he listened intently to my answers. And I thought those answers were worth sharing with you. So today we're going to talk about some 87 year old wisdom. Ready? Here we go. I've got this Great Dane. I've had a Great Dane for seven and a half years. Her name is Mina, and she's definitely the best thing that ever happened to me. She's from Mexico, and I've had her her entire life. So yesterday we went on a walk, and we went down to the river, and we walked around, and then I came up a way that I don't usually go, and I walked through this neighborhood that I've never been through, and... I looked over, I was on one side of the street, and on the other side of the street, there was a garage door open and an old, old man walking out of the garage. There was a for sale sign in his yard, and there were boxes in his main, mostly empty garage, right? And so, I'm very personable, and I love people, so immediately I said, oh, you're moving out. He said, in a very thick accent, he said, yes. He said, Sometimes in life, we have to do things we don't want to do. So I started walking across the street right towards him. I said, how long have you been here? He said, six years. And he says, it's such a beautiful place to live. I shook his hand and he said, you know, there's not that many beautiful places on earth left. 
And he says, I'm serious. I really mean that. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm born and raised here in Central Oregon. And to be honest, it's been kind of hard on me to watch the huge influx of people, everyone moving from California and from Seattle to Bend and coming in with their money and kind of pricing me out of housing and blah, 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 my own victim thing, right? So we kind of, we got to talking. He asked me what I do for a living. I told him I was a professional paraglide pilot. He says, huh, what a dangerous occupation. I don't understand why people would choose such dangerous things to do. Why do people need to put the line right on the line? Hmm. Interesting. It's a good question. One I can't entirely answer for even myself, but there's just that visceral draw, right? Sipping coffee here. It's the morning in Oregon. So, He asked, me a, he asked me a couple questions that were all pretty profound. The first one that he asked me was, why do you think it is that people do drugs and drink? Why do they smoke pot and get drunk all the time? And then he listened. And I said, well, I think you know why. I think that with all of the messages coming from outside of people of Armageddon and doom and climate catastrophe... And, and tyranny and the government and Donald Trump and North Korea and nuclear war with Iran and yada, yada, yada. I think that people don't want that <clears throat> to be their only reality. So they tend to numb it out. There's other reasons too, like the things that are going on in our emotions, in our lives, our own feelings about our security, our existential angst, our not-enoughness, our worth. We escape from those things with substance and other things, right? He agreed. He agreed. Next, he basically said, he said, in the early 40s in Germany, I remember that we used to buy bread in the morning and by the evening it would have gone bad. It would have gotten hard. And he said, but then all of a sudden along came this invention that would keep the bread fresher longer and it was called a plastic bag. And he said, one of his great mentors said, this is the greatest catastrophe we've ever created as humanity. Which, what an incredible thing to even have a conversation with someone in the midst of this ins just incessant climate fervor to have a conversation with someone who remembers when plastic bags came out. Holy shit. He remembers when plastic bags came out. And it kept his bread fresher longer which makes it easier for people to live if you don't have to throw out your food. It's like a refrigerator, right? Like if you only could eat what was fresh that day and it rots overnight, then man, it makes grocery shopping and feeding yourself at home like a much bigger task. And that's something we'll get into here in just a minute. But 
at the tail of this story, he said, so what do we do next? What, what hope is left for the future? He said, we have made a huge catastrophe of, catastrophe of this plastic stuff. He said, there's garbage all over the world and in the ocean. So what hope is left for the future? What do we do next? Wow, what a huge question to pose to a young man like myself walking my dog, right? And I don't have a perfectly formed answer to whip out of my pocket and give to him right there as to what do we do next. Basically what I said to him was, I don't think we're all going to die because of the plastic. And the plastic is a catastrophe, I totally agree. There are disastrous situations that we've created for ourselves in the ocean and on our beaches and in our mountains. But <clears throat> it's unlikely to kill us right now. So I told him that I thought that alarmism wasn't the answer because alarmism keeps people from being creative and it keeps people from having real conversations. So I said, the next thing we should do is we should take a real look, stop Stop with the blaring alarms and the and all of this really emotional it's like really emotional, right? Like all the renewable energy is so romantic, but that's really not a real solution. And the problems are hard to even understand because they're skewed towards the side of catastrophe as far as news media and what people consume online and in their, um, you know, the, the, the regular updates. If it bleeds, it leads. And so the climate has to be bleeding. The polar bears have to be dying for people to want to put it on the news. But I think that if we really heighten the sense of alarmism, then people bury their heads in the sand and they want to ignore it. Because they're afraid. Fear makes people ignore things. Fear, fear is not the best uh, initiator of action. It really isn't. Psychology has proven that over and over and over. Um, if I'm paragliding and something happens that's existentially a risk for me, like I need to take care of this right now or I could be putting my life in jeopardy, my, if my response is pure fear, then I'm essentially going to die. Because in true fear, you freeze. There is this common theme when people have near misses that when they realize that they're having a near miss, that like it's either do something right now or die, they remember it and they say, I wasn't even scared. I didn't have time to be scared. Yes, absolutely. If you are afraid, you freeze. And the same thing with our climate. We all know that if you're terrified, your chance of being creative is really, really small. So to be creative, to come up with global solutions, to come up with your own local solutions, this takes some kind of security and it takes some kind of relaxation and spaciousness to be creative and to come up with things. So blaring the alarms and turning to the scientists and being like, save us, that's, that, that's hardly a 
It's hardly a call to action that actually works in any kind of positive, humane way. That's a longer answer than I gave him, but I think if he would have listened to my rant, I probably would have kept going. (laughs) But after that, he asked me, why did we make this catastrophe? And I said, wow, that's a very good question. And I feel like you know the answer to that as well. I said, there's this sentiment that is going around, particularly in young people, millennials, Greta Thunberg, with a call to action saying we have to stop burning fossil fuels now and a demonization of fossil fuels, people have forgotten. They see the cost. They say, look at what we've done to the earth. This is the cost. But they forget what we've bought. They forget what we bought. And I said, we bought your bread. We made it easier for you to keep bread on the table. We made it easier for people to move around cheaper for them to heat their homes. We gave them more freedom. We made them able to work less and spend more time at home with their families. We have risen the standard of living for literally billions of people by creating cheap energy using fossil fuels. If we are to look at the cost, it is absolutely imperative that we do not forget what we bought. Because if we forget what we bought, then we're in such a privileged place that we can't understand why the third world is still trying to buy what we bought in the same way that we bought it. There are people out there, there are people in our own country who are struggling to survive, to make a living, to feed their children, to heat their homes. And they do not have the privilege of choosing whether or not they're going to use a zero-emissions Tesla or drive their Ford Lincoln Continental Mercury thing. There are people out there who need their bread to stay fresh so they don't give a fuck if it's a plastic bag or not. The plastic bag brings a massive increase in quality to their lives and they're going to take advantage of it. This is imperative to remember. Because without this perspective of what we bought, we lose the humanity in the discussion. We lose the humanity of the discussion because there is this sense, there is this sentiment floating around, especially in women that I, that I follow online, that we have The patriarchy has destroyed the environment to oppress and to be greedy and to be uh, just to consume. And I think that there is greed and there is blatant consumption out there. But if you think that that is the accurate portrayal of how humanity has used fossil fuels, you are likely to make egregious errors in policy and in perspective when moving forward. 
You have to understand what we used fossil fuels for and what it did to our world, what it did to our lifestyles. We have air-conditioned hospitals. We have kept children alive. We have dropped the infant mortality rate. We are in a time of, we are in the most peaceful time that humanity has ever seen, which is a little known fact to the people who are alarmists. We are in the most peaceful time humanity has ever known in the history of ever. If you want to know more about that, there's a great book by Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's 700 pages, and it lays out exactly how and why we are in the most peaceful time that humanity has ever seen. It's really important to get the story right, because if we're looking to move forward, we need to remember where we came from and why we did it. So he asked me, he asked me what I thought people should do. What should people do now? And I told him, I said, typically I tell people that before they try to change the external world, they need to change their internal world. Because the reality is that you are the world. You are a small sliver. You are a microcosm of the macrocosm, right? So, before you try to impose regulation on third world countries as to how much fossil fuel they can use, you ought look at your own consumption and the things in your life that you can make a impact with right now. Because if you look at those things inside of yourself and you think, okay, my consumption, I drive my car. Why do I drive my car? What kind of freedoms does my car give me? What kind of lifestyle does my car enable? What kind of lifestyle does my cheap natural gas heated home afford me? That way you can really understand why other people would want to cheat, want to heat their homes with cheap natural gas. Why they would want to have the freedom of a vehicle. So managing your internal world is the first step in anything. If you have a girlfriend, you don't get to manipulate how your girlfriend feels or how she thinks. You have to first master your inner world and understand the, the things that come into your behavior because of your emotions, the things that become reality because of your imprinting and because of your programming that you've been raised in and the society and the culture. So all kinds of things you got to look at inside of yourself before you're even remotely qualified to look outside of yourself. And 99% of the world skips that part and they just go to blaming the patriarchy and blaming humanity and saying that we're parasites and spouting off all of this vastly inaccurate, untrue, bullshit garbage that's just loaded with their own guilt and their own burden of how much of a parasite they feel, how, 
out of place they feel in society, in the world. And then they project that onto the world outside of them. He really liked that. He thought, oh, that's... I." He said that he, he agrees. And his last question to me was, do you think that people need God? He said, in 1945, I gave up and I thought that humans couldn't save themselves. They couldn't fix all of the problems that they had made, that they would need God. He said, when we defeated... No. He said that he grew up in Germany near the place where they developed the V2. The V2 was this like intercon like an ICBM, right? Like an intercontinental ballistic missile that was the Germans were trying to put a nuclear warhead on it, right? That was going to win the war for them, yada yada. And basically he said that if Hitler would have had one more year that he would have developed it and if it wasn't for the 2000 bombers flying over Berlin that he counted. He said he counted 2,000. And he said back then they weren't fast, they were slow. And he laughed at that. But he said that if he would have had one more year, Germany would have won the war. And he said when the Allies won the war, he said that was our chance to change the world. That was our chance to change the world. But we missed it. America took over. And here we are now. And he said, since then they did the Vietnam thing and then the Middle East thing. And I said, well, to be fair, the whole history of humanity, indigenous and modern alike, is characterized by little more than nonstop warfare and conflict. <laughs> It is important to realize that our species has been at conflict for its entire existence. And with that, we can begin to appreciate the peace that we actually have, and we can see the wars for what they are. But he said, do you think that we need God? And I said, yes. Let me explain. In the Bible, in the Bible, it talks about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the light. The Tao, a Chinese ancient sacred text, the Tao means the way. You've heard hippies refer to people as being pure light. You've heard scientists talk about what is actually true. These are all ways of talking about the thing that you can never actually quite define, you can never quite put your finger on it. Zen talks about it being the unnameable. 
And the truth or God really is just that. It is something you can't quite put your finger on. The only way to begin to shed light on it is to outline it, to say what it is not. But I agreed with him, yes, we do need God. We do need the truth. We need the way. I do not believe that God is a bearded man in the clouds who created everything with his human-like will and mind. I think that God is the way things really are. I think that there is God in the universe and the stars, and I think there's God in each and every one of us, in our consciousness, in our biology, in our physiology, in the complexity and the creativity that the universe is and holds and continues to develop. And if you have an appreciation for this oneness, this truth, this creativity, this positivity, then you can start to embody it and embrace the God that is inside of you and you can start to get in tune with what it is in the universe that beckons us forward. It brings us closer to enlightenment with every step. Do I think that people will need God to fix climate change? Absolutely. I think people will need to become more enlightened. I think that we as a species need to become more enlightened. And if I were to make an analogy, I would say that if you're a biologist and you're in the forest and you're watching caterpillars, caterpillars are ravenously hungry. And they eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And they don't pollinate anything. They don't transport seeds. And from a quick glance, you could think, these little monsters are going to eat all of the leaves and they're not going to pollinate. And next year, they're not going to be any more leaves for any more animals and the caterpillars are going to come and they're just going to ruin the environment. Right? But what's the truth of a caterpillar? A caterpillar goes around and for the first part of its life, it gathers things. It gathers carbohydrates and proteins and amino acids. And it gathers all these different things that it doesn't know it needs and it doesn't know why it's collecting them. And then one day... It gets the feeling that, you know what, I think I need to go up onto a certain kind of branch in a certain kind of place, and I'm not sure why, but I think I hang from my tail, and I think I spin this silk around myself. Yes, and it creates a cocoon. It creates a cocoon. And what happens next is... The caterpillar becomes a butterfly. But it's important to realize how it becomes a butterfly, for the analogy especially, because a caterpillar doesn't go into a cocoon and grows wings. No, 
a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and becomes goo. It becomes goo. The caterpillar ceases to exist. What then comes into existence is a butterfly. And the butterfly pollinates. The butterfly doesn't consume like the caterpillar does. The butterfly begins to take what the caterpillar did and take the carbohydrates, amino acids, proteins that it gathered, and then it starts giving it back to the universe. But the caterpillar didn't just grow wings. The caterpillar underwent an entire phase change. We are the caterpillars. Yes, we are chewing up our environment. Yes, we are chewing up our resources. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. We currently are engaging in materials economies that are unsustainable and self-terminating. Yes. But to understand how we become butterflies... being a complete and total phase shift is really important. Because right now, it seems that people are rallying the government to say, hey, fix the environment for us. Hey, we can't do it. We got a government. We got a... But the reality is that that is caterpillars trying to use caterpillar technology to pollinate. But caterpillars can't pollinate. They can't do it. Unenlightened civilization can't think and work together in the way that we would have to work together for us to have a sustainable materials economy. We can't. We can't be the United States and China and have a sustainable materials economy. We can't. We literally can't do it. It has to be a complete and total phase change. We have to evolve into the next iteration for us to be able to pollinate. So, don't hate on the caterpillars too much. The caterpillar doesn't know what it's doing. And at some level, I don't think we do either. But... I do know that the caterpillar has to consume so that it can become the butterfly. But there is this primordial goo phase where it makes or breaks the butterfly. The question for humanity is, will we be able to become the butterfly or will we just die out pre-cocoon? The butterfly in this situation is a hard thing to fathom as far as humanity working in a non-competitive way, accepting the reality of oneness and connectedness and creating materials economies in a way that is symbiotic and sustainable. It's a really big ask and it takes immense amounts of creativity to even imagine. So, 
I gave the old man a hug, to which he laughed, and he was surprised. He didn't really want a hug, but I couldn't not give him a hug. We shook hands. He gave me a card for the Jehovah's Witnesses. He told me that church was hocus-pocus, and if a church told one lie, it was one too many. He said the truth was in the Bible, and I agree. There is lots of truth in the Bible. There's lots of truth in sacred texts. There's truth in science. You've got to become a human sieve to be able to sift the baby from the bathwater. In every single conversation and sentence that ever runs through your mind. So, on the card, there was a quote. It was a Bible verse. It was Matthew 3, 1, which is, Happy are those conscious of their spiritual need. Hmm, isn't that nice? We don't just need fresh air. We don't just need clean water. We don't just need our earth to continue. Happy are those conscious of their spiritual need. Amen to that. Thanks for listening. Love you guys. See you on the next episode.